Hello, everyone. I am John Allen, the editor of Crux, and this is Last Week in the Church. Now, I'm coming to you from Rome, and here in Italy, when you have a good meal, it's typically divided into four parts. You have an antipasto, meaning an appetizer, a first dish, a second dish, and then dessert. And that's just the kind of menu we've got for you today. We begin with uh, the Vatican's money woes, or are they really? Then a new partnership for the Pope, a conviction in France, and finally, a birthday in Rome. So those are the plates we're going to be serving up. Stick around while I break it down. All right, so let us begin with our antipasto, the Vatican's money woes. The Council for the Economy held a virtual online Zoom meeting this past week to discuss the financial situation in the Holy See. And ladies and gentlemen, it's not that great. Uh, now, if you don't exactly know what the Council for the Economy is, you can be forgiven. Uh, this was a body created by Pope Francis in 2014 as part of an early sort of structural overhaul of Vatican finances. It was supposed to be the chief policy-setting body for financial uh, administration in the Vatican. Honestly, uh, over the years, it hasn't quite lived up to that billing. Uh, it would be difficult even for seasoned Vatican observers to name one sort of watershed dramatic thing they can remember this council having done. But uh, it is led by Cardinal Reinhard Marx uh, of Munich uh, in Bavaria in Germany, a very close advisor and ally of Pope Francis. And at least it does provide a forum uh, in which the numbers can be crunched. Uh, and during this most recent meeting, it was made clear to members of this council, which are, which are composed uh, of eight uh, cardinals, archbishops, uh, and then seven lay people. It is actually the only policy-setting organism in the Vatican, by the way, where laity are full equals with the cardinals. They have full voting rights along with everyone else. Uh, and if they had anything important to vote on, that would probably mean something. Uh, but uh, in any event, uh, they got a briefing on what the Vatican's uh, financial situation is. Uh, and as is well known, uh, the Vatican is swimming in red ink uh, this year. Uh, much of the Vatican's annual income relies on physical attendance. They need people to show up to buy tickets at the Vatican museums. Well, for that matter, they need the museums to be open uh, and for long stretches during Italy's uh, COVID-19 coronavirus lockdown, uh, that was not the case. Uh, and even when they reopened, attendance was staggeringly down because tourism uh, is down. Uh, the Vatican also relies on contributions from dioceses and Catholic organizations around the world. And of course, their coffers are empty too because they're having the same problem. Parishes have either been closed or dealing with dramatically reduced attendance at the Sunday liturgies which means fewer dollars or pesos or euros or whatever it is in the collection basket, and therefore uh, less money to send on to Rome. Uh, the Vatican is expecting to run about a 50 million euro, or that's about 60 million US dollars deficit uh, this year which will be the largest deficit it has run in some time. And that's on top of the fact uh, that for several years, it has been either just barely breaking even or running at an operating deficit, though not of this scale. <clears throat> and the truth of it is we don't actually know uh, how big the deficit has been the last few years because the last year, we even got the kind of skimpy anodyne annual financial statement we used to get was 2014. 
Uh, it, every year we have been told, oh, it's just around the corner. We're working on it. Uh, we still have not really seen it. Uh, so in a sense, we're just guessing here, but we do know uh, that the Vatican has been running at a deficit for some time and that problem will be compounded dramatically this year. Now, add to that the fact that there is a ticking financial time bomb uh, here in the Vatican, which is its pension fund. The way the Vatican has been remedying those deficits for many years uh, is by eating into cash reserves, and those cash reserves are supposed to be funding its long-term pension obligations. The Vatican has a large and rapidly aging workforce. An increasing share of those folks are going to be retiring in the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years. They expect their pension checks not to bounce, and it is not entirely clear to anyone in the Vatican exactly how they're going to pay for that. Uh, now, you know, you might think that in any other organization this would cause panic. I mean, l let me point out uh, that Australian Cardinal George Pell, uh, after his vindication in his sex abuse uh, appeal to Australia's high court, uh, recently came back to Rome to spend some time here to, to pack up uh, his apartment and to say his goodbyes. Uh, he, of course, was uh, the Vatican's chief financial officer for a while. He recently, recently gave an interview in which he said, with no ifs, ands, or buts, the Vatican is slowly going broke. Uh, and as I say, a, the management level of any other organization in those, uh, those circumstances might be expected to go to bed at night with a cold sweat, to, to wake up in the morning with a panic. Uh, and yet, there's very little indication of that here. Uh, Christmas plans, for instance, uh, are proceeding, uh, with, with the exception of the restrictions related to COVID, uh, more or less as normal. There will still be the, the, the live-streamed uh, Christmas Eve Mass from St. Peter's Basilica with all of the trappings and the finery. Uh, the Pope, of course, is planning a trip to Iraq in March. Recently, uh, the head of the Vatican Central Bank, known around here as the Administration of the Patrimony of the Apostolic See, gave an interview in which he said, oh, you know, uh, we're not going broke. Uh, everything is basically fine. We're, we're conducting a spending review that's normal. But, uh, you know, other than that, cool your jets, slow your roll. Everything is under control. Now, how does that add up? How could that be possible? Well, hold that question for a moment while we go to our primo piatto, that is our, our first main course here today, uh, and that is the Pope's new partnership. This week, this past week, uh, it was announced that the Council for Inclusive Capitalism, which is a group of socially responsible CEOs and other titans of the earth, uh, has entered into a partnership with the Vatican. It is now to be known as the Council for Inclusive Capitalism with the Vatican. Uh, and what this entails, apparently, uh, is that these CEOs and titans of policy and industry uh, each year will have a meeting with Pope Francis. Uh, they met uh, with him this past November. This partnership is a fruit of that session. Uh, and with Cardinal Peter Turkson of Ghana, uh, who heads the Vatican's dicastery for uh, integral human development. Uh, now, in terms of who these people are, uh, this is like a, a who's who of the corporate world. I mean, represented in this Council for Inclusive Capitalism are, for instance, uh, CEOs from the Bank of America, 
from British Petroleum, uh, from Ernst & Young, from Estee Lauder, uh, from MasterCard and Visa, from Johnson & Johnson, the, the Ford Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation. I mean, quite honestly, it would be easier to list the Fortune 500 companies that are not a part uh, of this group. Uh, in addition to representatives from uh, the UN, uh, OECD, and so on. Uh, it is the brainchild of a member of the Rothschild family uh, who is involved in uh, socially responsible capitalism projects. Uh, and uh, by, by the way, this is the kind of thing that, of course, drives far-right populists and conspiracy theorists absolutely insane. Um, I mean, this is to them like the Trilateral Commission in the Rosicrucians. I mean, they look at this thing and they think it has black helicopters written all over it uh, in the New World Order. Uh, but, you know, in reality, of course, these are business people, investors, bankers. Uh, who are interested in trying to soften what they see as some of the hard edges of free market global capitalism. So they're interested in ethical investing, in environmental protection, worker rights, equal opportunity, those sorts of things. And this is a body intended to promote that. Uh, it is, of course, precisely the kind of thing that Pope Francis has been talking about since his election in March 2013. He is, of course, himself probably the world's leading moral critic of those hard edges uh, of global free market capitalism. He talks about it being an economy that kills. Uh, and obviously, his recent encyclical letter, Fratelli Tutti, uh, is, in a sense, uh, a long-form alternative vision, one which this Council for Inclusive Capitalism with the Vatican wants to promote. Now, you know, if you wanted to be a cynic about this kind of thing, I mean, basically you could say, well, really what this amounts to is an opportunity for these CEOs and, you know, other business types uh, to have an annual photo op with the Pope and to sort of salve their conscience uh, by the knowledge that they are involved in a project that is attempting to lift up the downtrodden without in any fundamental way altering their business practices. Remains to be seen if that case for cynicism is sustained. But before we leave the subject, let me make this point. Collectively, the corporate players who are involved in this Council for Inclusive Capitalism with the Vatican, this new partnership with the Pope, they represent $10.5 trillion of assets under control, $2.1 trillion of market capitalization and collectively a workforce of 200 million people. Now, let's go back to our first story, the Vatican's money woes. Okay, the Vatican is running a 50 million euro deficit this year and that's a problem, of course. Uh, it has unfunded pension obligations. Let's assume it's 10 times that. So we're talking 500 million euros. So collectively, let's say there's 600, 700 million. I mean, round it up, make it a billion euro in the hole. Do you seriously think that the Pope's new BFFs in this Council for Inclusive Capitalism, with $10.5 trillion of assets under control and $2.1 trillion in market capitalization, if push came to shove, couldn't put their heads together, pass the hat, uh, and do the Pope a solid? I mean, in other words, I think one of the reasons that the collective blood pressure of the Vatican doesn't go up when they see red ink on the books is because every one of them knows all the Pope really has to do is ask and many of these problems can probably be solved. 
All right, let us move on to our secundo piano, which is typically the meat dish in an Italian meal, well, or seafood. Uh, in this case, uh, it's a conviction in France of Italian Archbishop Luigi Ventura. Uh, Archbishop Ventura, who is a career Vatican diplomat, had served as the Pope's ambassador in France from 2009 to 2018. Uh, he, last year, uh, in 2019, he was accused by a young clerk, essentially, who worked in the Paris mayor's office, uh, of, uh, who, who claimed that Archbishop uh, Ventura had uh, inappropriately groped him uh, at a reception. Uh, after that, three other accusers making similar accusations of molestation and groping came forward. Prosecutors in France intended that they uh, communicated at the time that they intended to investigate uh, and then said they wanted to file charges. The Vatican, in a somewhat uh, rare uh, move, uh, indicated that it was going to waive Archbishop Ventura's diplomatic immunity so that he could face those charges. We should say that Archbishop Ventura has vigorously denied these charges, continues to maintain his, his innocence. Despite that, <coughs> a court in Paris this past week found him guilty uh, on the molestation charges and uh, sentenced him to eight months in prison, but that sentence is suspended. Archbishop Ventura is currently in Rome. He came back to Rome in 2019. Uh, he was planning to return to France to participate in the trial, uh, but due to ill health and travel restrictions related to COVID, he didn't do that. So he was, in effect, sentenced in absentia. Uh, now, uh, his lawyer swiftly indicated that Archbishop Ventura plans to appeal. Two points to make about this, I think. One is when we look at these situations, I think there are two cases, two object lessons, really, we always have to have in mind. One is the case of ex-cardinal and ex-priest Theodore McCarrick. Uh, that is an object lesson that senior clerics, in, including the most senior officials in the Catholic power structure, are in fact guilty of sexual crime. Uh, the McCarrick story confirms that for us definitively. Uh, it is also an indication that charges of those sexual crimes need to be taken seriously when they first arise. Had that happened in the McCarrick saga back in the 1990s, much of the subsequent scandal could have been avoided. But the other case to bear in mind, the other object lesson, is that of Cardinal George Pell, which we mentioned earlier. Pell was accused not of molestation or groping. He was accused of outright sexual abuse uh, and convicted uh, in a jury trial in Australia. That, that jury conviction was upheld on its first appeal, and it was only when it reached the Australian High Court that those justices ruled that no reasonable person should have convicted Pell on the strength of the evidence that was actually presented at that trial. In other words, what these two object lessons together tell us is that every accusation, even against the most senior figure in the system, has to be taken seriously. But at the same time, an accusation is not the same thing as guilt. Which of these two object lessons turns out to be the more appropriate metaphor for the situation of Archbishop Luigi Ventura remains to be seen. I think the other takeaway from the Ventura case simply is this. Uh, it is another sort of historical turning point, if you like. It's a, it's a chapter in a long story. 
which is the gradual, if not erosion, at least softening uh, of the Vatican's sovereign immunity. The Vatican is, of course, a sovereign state under international law. It takes that status very seriously. And that sovereignty is intended to serve a good end, which is the papacy's freedom of action. The Pope should not be beholden to the Prime Minister of Italy or the President of the European Union or the President of the United States or any other temporal power. Uh, the Pope should have uh, independence. Uh, and that's what that so the sovereignty is, in effect, a wall around that independence. But over the years, that sovereignty has also sometimes turned out to be a prison. Uh, it has insulated the Vatican from reasonable exposure to critique and to liability. Uh, and it has also engendered perceptions of arrogance and uh, that the Vatican believes it is above the law. Recent popes have understood that. Pope Benedict XVI, for instance, set aside that sovereignty when he decided to have the Vatican participate in the money vol process. That's the Council of Europe's anti-money laundering watchdog unit to ensure that the Vatican is playing by the same rules as everyone else. Uh, in the Ventura case, uh, when Cardinal Pell did not invoke diplomatic immunity but went back to Australia to stand trial, it was another step in that direction. And so is the Ventura case. In other words, what we are seeing here is an intriguing and profoundly important historical process play out. Popes are trying to figure out how to maintain the good dimension of sovereignty while escaping from the prison that sovereignty sometimes imposes. And finally, our dessert item, Pope Francis had a birthday this week. Uh, on Thursday, Pope Francis turned the ripe old age of 84. Uh, although I can assure you, uh, the guy does not look a day over 83. Uh, I mean, he actually often looks like a man 15, 20 years uh, his junior. Uh, this is the energizer bunny of popes. He does not seem to have an off switch. There is no indication of any health concern around Pope Francis. Uh, and for all that any of us who are here and watching him in action can see, uh, he looks good to go for some time to come. We were told by the Vatican that Pope Francis did not do anything special uh, to celebrate his birthday, that he spent the day uh, in the Casa Santa Marta, that's the residence or hotel on Vatican grounds where he has lived uh, since the, the beginning of his papacy, uh, as a sort of birthday gesture. You know, people typically get presents on their birthday, but Pope Francis decided to give one. He sent four respirators to the people of Venezuela uh, to help them cope with the COVID crisis that they are experiencing, which, of course, comes on top of a deep social and political mess uh, in that nation. Um, but, you know, in the Vatican, typically, they don't have any official celebrations for the Pope's birthday either. Typically, the day they mark is the anniversary of his papacy, which in Francis's case is March 13th, not his birthday, uh, December 17th. And that is because the Vatican typically wants to put the emphasis on the office rather than the man. Nonetheless, this week with the Pope's birthday is probably a day for, it's probably a time rather, for reflection on the man. Uh, because Jorge Mario Bergoglio, sure, he's the successor of Peter. And as such, there is an institutional, official, structural nature to the role that he plays. But he is also one of the more unique individuals ever to occupy 
uh, that office. Uh, from the beginning, he has brought his personality to it, uh, and that has delighted some and consternated others. Uh, but it has meant there has never been a dull moment. Whatever else you want to say about this papacy, it is endlessly fascinating. And so Jorge Mario Bergoglio, happy birthday, many happy returns, ad multos anos, and we look forward to watching the next act. All right, that's our show for this week. We are going to be on a two-week hiatus because next Friday, ladies and gentlemen, is Christmas, and the Friday after that is New Year's. So have a very merry and blessed Christmas. Have an incredibly happy New Year. Stay safe, stay healthy, stay happy. Until we talk to one another again, have a fantastic fortnight.